You know the Bible. You know, what what makes what makes this book unique? What makes this book any different than any other book? You know, throughout the history of the church, uh, people have stood firm that there is something unique about this book. And I want to tell you one story about a man and how he viewed this book. And it occurred around 300 A.D. And during that time, there was a man who uh, ruled over Rome. He was the emperor of Rome. His name was Diocletian. And Diocletian decided that he wanted to try to eradicate Christianity. And the way he was going to do that is by getting rid of the Word of God. If you can destroy the Word of God, then you can destroy the people of God, was his reasoning. And so he set out to do that. And so he put forth an edict that said this. You were to tear down the churches to the foundations and to destroy the sacred scriptures by fire. That's the edict. And so one day, they go to a church. The authorities come to the church and they force the doors open, make their way in, take the sacred books, bring them out, and then burn them. Commit them to the flames. And this started going throughout the empire. And it reached one city and one church. And in this church, there was a man named Timothy. Now, this is a different Timothy than the one found in the New Testament. This is several, several hundred years later. But no doubt, I'm sure this man was named after the Timothy we find in the New Testament. But this Timothy was a deacon of the church. And perhaps his job was to guard or to hold the Bible for the church. This is before the printing press. And so every copy of the Bible had to be hand copied. And so you can imagine to have a copy of the Bible, the Word of God, was very unique and very valuable and special to the church. And so this deacon, his job was to hold the Scriptures. Well, one day, Timothy was arrested. And just to give you a little more background about Timothy, just three weeks prior, he got married. And so it's a newlywed Deacon in the church, guarding the scripture in his household, perhaps somewhere. And he was apprehended as a Christian. And he was brought before the governor. Because the governor knew that this Timothy was the one who was in charge of holding the scripture for the church. And so he brought him forward. And he commanded Timothy to deliver them to be burned. And listen to what Timothy had to say. He said... Had I children, I would sooner deliver them up to be sacrificed than part with the Word of God. And so the governor, obviously not being too excited about Timothy's response and his unwillingness to turn over the Bible, the Word of God, ordered that his eyes be put out with red hot irons. And his reasoning was this, we'll put your eyes out and the books will be useless to you because you won't be able to read them. Well, the the patient endurance of Timothy during even that type of torture uh, exasperated the governor. And so therefore he ordered, in order to try to overcome Timothy's fortitude, he ordered that Timothy be hung upside down and that a weight be tied to his neck by a rope and a gag he put in his mouth. And while his 
newlywedded wife uh, watched on. Her name was Mara. She tenderly urged him to recant. You know, give up the scriptures. Give, give them the Bible. And so when the gag was taken out of his mouth, thinking that perhaps his wife had talked him into doing it and he'll turn them over, they took the gag out of his mouth and instead of consenting to his wife's entreaties, he greatly blamed her mistaken love and declared his resolution of dying for the faith. And so the consequence was that Mara, his wife, after seeing the, the courage of her husband, decided to imitate his stance and either accompany him or follow him into glory. And so both Timothy and Mara, because of their resistance and their unwillingness to turn over the Bible to be burned, were both crucified next to each other in A.D. 304. So this man Timothy was crucified because he would not tell where he had hidden his Bible. So the question is, you know, if you were Timothy, what would you have done? What, what calls people to guard and protect this book? You know, what makes this book any different than other famous books such as Plato's Republic? What's the distinction? Well, obviously you all believe there's a distinction or you probably wouldn't be here. And you probably believe that this book uh, does not come from man, but it, it, has a, it has a divine origin. And you believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And you're not alone, because I too believe the Bible is the Word of God. And I believe the letter that we've been studying, 1 Thessalonians, is the Word of God. And the verses that we're going to study this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, we're going to see that the Thessalonians themselves saw that what was taught them by Paul was in fact the Word of God. So turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, as I read this passage. And if you don't have a Bible this morning, we have one in the pew in front of you. You are welcome to use and follow along in as well. So 1 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 13, Paul writes, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. And so what we have seen so far in this letter to the Thessalonians, the first chapter tells us how the gospel came to the Thessalonians and how they received it. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, we saw how Paul and Silas came into Thessalonica, these gospel messengers, and how they were received. And now what we're going to see in these next few verses is how the Thessalonians viewed the teaching of Paul. And what I want to seek to do this morning is I want to show you that our belief that the Bible is the Word of God, is, it's an extension of 
of the same stream that led the Thessalonians to believe that what Paul taught them was the Word of God. And I hope to show that connection this morning. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to attempt to do that in three steps. The first step is by looking at this phrase that Paul uses, the Word of God, and see what he means by that. What does Paul mean by the phrase, the Word of God? And the second step is to try to see how this Word of God is communicated to the people. And then lastly, we're going to look at how the view of the Thessalonians that Paul's teaching was the Word of God, is the Word of God, informs our view that the Bible is the Word of God. And so, first of all, let's define what Paul means when he says the Word of God. And we see this phrase in verse 13 when he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. So this phrase, the Word of God, or another phrase that's very similar to that, the Word of the Lord, appears several times in the Bible. For example, in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 13, we see that this phrase, the Word of God, refers to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Listen as I read these verses. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And so this phrase, the Word of God, can actually refer to a person. And that person is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And in other places in Scripture, this phrase, the Word of God or the Word of the Lord, can refer to God's decrees. In other words, it can refer to when God says something, He causes something to happen. For example, in Psalm 33, verse 6, this is what we read. But the word of the Lord, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all their host by the breath of His mouth. And so when we see the phrase, the word of the Lord, or the word of God, it can refer to when God spoke something into existence or caused something to happen. It can refer to one of His decrees. But it can also refer to uh, the communication of God's redemptive purposes for His people. And this, I think, is the meaning associated with that phrase in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You know, Paul came to Thessalonica. He taught the Thessalonians who God is, how they can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and how they can walk with God daily. And I think all of that is summed up in this phrase, the Word of God. And so the second step here is, how is this Word of God communicated to the people? How is it communicated to them? How is it communicated to the people of God throughout history? And what we see, if you've read the Bible, you recognize that the norm seems to be that God communicates to an individual and then charges that individual to communicate to the people. And examples abound from Noah to Abraham, from Moses to David, from the prophets to the apostles. And we see this example continue in 1 Thessalonians 2.13 when Paul says, 
you received the Word of God which you heard from us. So again, we have God communicating to a person, namely Paul, and Paul communicating the Word of God, the message of God to the people of Thessalonica. And so we see the Word, the message of God communicated through Paul. And it's interesting that we see not only, not only is this Word communicated verbally, which obviously happened when Paul first came to Thessalonica. He told them the Word of God, who God is, how they can know God, how, can they, how, they, how they can walk with God, what God has for them. But then he also puts it in written form in the letter that we call 1 Thessalonians. And that is the form of the Word of God that we have today. And so we are reading this Word of God that they read almost 2,000 years ago. So we see that this phrase, the Word of God, refers to God's revelation of Himself. We see that it's communicated normally through people and even can be communicated through a written form. And we see this throughout the Scripture as well. So let's look at this third step. How does the Thessalonians' view of Paul's teaching inform our view that the Bible is in fact the Word of God? Well, 1 Thessalonians is not the only letter in the Bible that references this idea of being the Word of God. We see this pattern all throughout the Bible. Over 400 times the phrase, the Lord says, or thus saith the Lord, is used in the Bible. In other words, God communicates to someone, and that person communicates to the people and says, this is what God says. In other words, this is the Word of the Lord. And so we see God communicating to a person, that going out to the people. Theologian Wayne Grudem uh, puts it this way. He says, frequently in Scripture, God raises up prophets through whom He speaks. It is evident that although these are human words, spoken in ordinary human language, by ordinary human beings, the authority and trust, trust truthfulness the authority and truthfulness of these words is in no way diminished. They are still completely God's words as well. And so his point here is that God communicates to a person, a prophet, an apostle, and then that person communicates to the people, and there's nothing lost in that translation. It's still just as authoritative, just as true as it was when it first came to the person. And we see Paul telling us in his letter to the Ephesians that God's people, God's people, they are built on Christ and the foundation is the prophets and apostles. In other words, the foundation of this building, that it, Christ is the cornerstone, but we know about Christ, we learn about Christ, we're built up in Christ through this foundation of the prophets and apostles. In other words, we're built on the foundation of those who have communicated the Word of God to us. That's what our faith rests in, in Christ, through the communication that's been given to us by the prophets and the apostles, which is the Word of God. So not only do we see these prophets, these apostles, these people of God, these, these certain people... Uh, speak the Word of God, like Paul did to the Thessalonians when he came to them, but we also see them writing it down 
to preserve it for current and future generations. And God Himself set the precedent for this. If you remember back in Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, this is what God says. He says, And He gave to Moses, God gave to Moses, when He had finished speaking to him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone, He's referring there to the Ten Commandments, written with the finger of God. And I believe what we see here is God is setting a precedent that God is going to preserve His Word for His people, and He's showing it right off the bat when He gives the Ten Commandments. He's revealing Himself to Moses and to the people. He writes it down so it can be preserved for current and future generations. Later in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 9, this is what we read. Then Moses wrote this law, and he's referring to not only the Ten Commandments, but all the other revelation that God had given him. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. In the book of Joshua, in chapter 24, just verse 26, we read that, And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law. Later, God told the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 30, verse 2, Write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. And we know Jesus told His disciples that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will remember all those words that I taught you. In other words, they would recall the words of God so they can communicate the Word of God to the people of God. And we see Paul with no reservation saying that the words that he writes to the Corinthians, for example, and this is found in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, what he writes to them is a command of the Lord. So there seems to be an understanding even among the apostles that what we are telling you about God and His redemptive purposes, how you come to know Him, how you walk with Him, this is equivalent to the Old Testament Scripture. This is the Word of God. And so we see that the Word of God is God's revelation of Himself that has been captured in written form in the Bible. I want to share a couple of other verses with you. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. In 2 Peter 1.21, Peter writes, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, it is, it is that uniqueness. It is that fundamental belief that the Bible is the Word of God. It has a divine origin that calls Timothy, that we read about earlier, to refuse to give it up so easily. Even to give his own life in protection for this book. Now, you probably will not have anyone come to your door today and ask you to hand over your Bible and turn it over to the authorities. You probably, you probably will not be put to death for having a copy of the Word of God. However, there are agents that are always seeking and finding their way into your life that seek to keep you from the Word of God. Tell me what's worse. 
having someone come and take away your Bible and keep you from reading it, or having a Bible and not reading it. See, Diocletian, he is, he is dead and gone. But there are several other things in our lives that seek to take us away, separate us from the Word of God. And I don't know what that is for you. It could be something as simple as television or video games or just busyness. Just other things that we crave other than God's Word. You know, I was meeting with a a guy that I've been discipling for the past several months and he was leaving uh, on a month-long trip with his job. And so we were talking about this trip and I encouraged him to... You know, see this trip as a month-long mission trip. And to make the most of his time while he's out of town. And one of the things I challenged him with was to read the Bible. Just be intentional about reading the Bible. And I shared with him a, a challenge that I embraced many years ago. And it's rooted in the idea found in Romans 12, verse 2. When Paul says that we should not be conformed to the world but we should be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so it's rooted in that. And I said the challenge that I I gave myself was this. That I would read at least one verse of Scripture a day. Just one verse. And obviously, I I would hope that that would snowball into more most days. But at least give my soul at least one word from God. Because it's the belief that the only way that we will renew our minds, align our minds with God and His ways, is through the reading of His Word. And so I challenged him with that, and perhaps that's a challenge you may want to adopt yourself. But you may say, Ron, you know, I've tried to read the Bible, and I just have a hard time wanting to do that. Well, I've been there, and I want to encourage you to pray and ask God to give you an appetite for His Word. Ask Him to give you a craving for His Word. And then go to the Scripture, open it up, and begin reading it in faith. Believing that God is going to use it, even though you may not want to read it at that moment. Believing that He's going to use it to renew your mind. To tell you about who He is. To tell you how you can walk with Him daily. And I want to encourage you to do that individually. Take some time alone with the Lord and read the Scripture. But I also want to encourage you to do that with other people. And we have several opportunities within our church that you can do that. And many of you are taking advantage of those already. Uh, For example, we have many different Sunday school classes that meet every Sunday morning at 945. And one of the main focuses of that is to get into the, the Scripture. To read God's Word together. We also gather on Sunday nights. Uh, Like tonight, we're going to be gathering here in the sanctuary at 6 p.m. and worship the Lord, and we're going to dive into the Scripture. On Wednesday nights, we gather in the social hall at 6.30, and we pray for one another, we pray for our city, and then we dive into the Scripture. Just this past Wednesday, I started a new series on heaven that's going to run throughout the summer. A chance just to get into the Word together. And the point is to just make the Bible part of your daily diet. 
Because it's through the written Word that we grow in our relationship with the personal Word of God, Jesus Christ. And so what I want to challenge you this morning with is I want you to receive it. I want you to read it. And I want you to be changed by it. Let us pray. God, we are so thankful that you are not silent. But that you are a God who makes himself known. And we are so grateful that you have preserved that revelation of yourself in the Bible. Lord, give us an appetite for your word. Give us a desire to know you, to be transformed and renewed by your words. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit would take what we do read, place it deeply in our hearts. That we would just grow closer to you, more in love with you, be more on mission for you. And Lord, we know that only you can do that in our hearts. Only you can give us that desire. Lord, would you do that today? In Jesus' name, amen.